and welcome to Decisive Point, our new podcast series for the U.S. Army War College Press. The Decisive Point gets directly to the heart of the matter. We invite distinguished authors to discuss their recent contributions to the press. Today we have Army Captain Danelle Gamble. She is the author of an article that calls for a new approach to addressing systemic social inequality in the U.S. military. This article appears in the autumn 2020 issue of Parameters. Captain Gamble recently obtained a Master of Policy degree from Duke University's Sanford School of Public Policy. She serves as a military police officer in the U.S. Army. Welcome to Decisive Point, Danelle. Thank you so much for having me. I understand your master's thesis dealt with the topic of systemic inequalities uh, in the U.S. military. What was your most surprising discovery in the course of your research? Yes, uh, while I was at Duke University, I researched systemic social inequalities in the Army. The most impactful takeaway for me was that many of the inequalities evidenced today across social distinctions, be it race, gender, socioeconomic status, they're not simply de facto, just the way it is, right? Um, They're actually de jour, a byproduct of laws and policies um, that have been developed to dehumanize and oppress social minorities. This isn't something I learned in school, you know, growing up. This was something that was a new concept to me. Um, And in some cases, programs were actually orchestrated at the federal level in a way that intentionally permitted discriminatory execution at local levels, resulting in disparate outcomes across race. Um, Ira Katznelson points this out in his book, When Affirmative Action Was Was White, looking, um, one of the chapters in there looks specifically at the GI Bill, and it's just really eye-opening to see how um, federal politicians orchestrated and, and wrote the GI Bill in a way that allowed local governments to, to continue to practice discrimination uh, when that wasn't um, you know, how it was supposed to, to play out. And so um, while a new approach focuses on race-based systemic social inequalities, specifically those experienced by Black Americans, um, in my studies at Duke, I learned that these systemic social inequalities exist uh, for other social minorities as well, women, poor whites, indigenous populations and whatnot. And so to see how they're du jour um, was really eye-opening. I see. And for for years, the conventional wisdom has been that the U.S. military has been a leader in working toward diversity and inclusion. But in your article, you suggest that is actually not the case. So I wonder if you would share with us some of your findings on that point. Sure. Um, so in many respects, the military has been a leader uh, with plenty of evidence of progress. But the department hasn't solved the problem. Um, and and unfortunately, more recently in, in Throughout time, a lot of times it takes an approach that looks at discrimination as episodic, the result of you know individual bad actors, you know a one-time policy maybe that came out that was discriminatory. Um, and, and another part of their approach has often been that it sees the solution as as a numbers game, right? With the goal of racial representation equating to the national representation of various race um, racial categories. Um, But these these approaches are problematic. They don't consider the systemic nature of bias and inequalities, nor do they consider that integration itself does not equate to diversity. And diversity and diversity policies do not equate to race, uh, excuse me, to an inclusive environment. So 
Because the military has provided so many amazing opportunities for social minorities, when the civilian environment hasn't always done that, right, um, the military often seems to consider itself post-racial. This has allowed for what Dr. Lawrence Bobo uh, terms laissez-faire racism to persist. Um, and it's kind of that under the radar stuff that continues to happen. Uh, what a new approach highlights is that the military replicates the systemic social biases and resulting inequalities that are found in broader society. One area that I highlight in the book is return on skills, right? It's a great example when comparing um, the civilian world and the military. Civilian studies show that resumes with white sounding names have three times the return to skills as resumes with black sounding names. So in the military, we see that, um, you know, there's, there's also a reduced return to skill as you increase in rank in the officer corps. Once you pass the rank of 04, white officers are 29% more likely to be promoted than black officers. In the Navy, some research actually shows that um, there's differences in officer evaluation report comments that actually disadvantage black officers. Um, what I find most fascinating as, as I go through in the article and, and, and highlight some of these areas of evidence, um, what I find most fascinating is the, the history behind these systemic social inequalities. So in the article, I'm able to flesh that history a, a, out a bit. And by pairing that history with social science theory, um, it allows us to see how inequalities continue to manifest today. When Blacks were initially allowed to serve, they were relegated to what was seen as you know, menial occupations um, back then of support roles. This changed when Vietnam rolled around and Blacks were disproportionately put into combat infantry roles early on um, in the war. That eventually worked itself out after many um, civil rights protests happened in the United States. But um, this, the service of Blacks were also uh, limited when it came to the officer corps, highly relegated in the beginning. So the manipulation of Blacks deciding when, where, and how they could serve to the benefit of the white majority has been de jour in the military and it's had reverberating effects. There's such a rich history of how bias has been baked into our systems and institutions. Um, and the contemporary we, everyone, social majority and minority today, we're often unaware of how it exists and how it plays out today. Um, there's a power behind it, something that Dr. J. Pearson from Duke University calls historical inertia. Um, and it's this force that the military has failed to acknowledge and address. And this is why we continue to see a lack of racial diversity at higher echelons in the military. It's why we're just now seeing the first black service chief 66 years um, after we integrated the force. And it's why Secretary Esper's commitment to addressing racism in the force is so important. Yeah, so given these findings, um, what would you say the US military <clears throat> needs, to, excuse me, needs to do now in order to make real progress in this area? Yeah, I, the military has to acknowledge that these uh, inequalities and biases exist and that they're systemic. And I think a lot of the awareness that's going on in the greater U.S. society today is really going to contribute to this, this type of acknowledgement. In 1948, in a Senate Armed Services Subcommittee hearing on universal military training, then General Dwight D. Eisenhower observed that the military is merely one of the mirrors that holds up to our faces the United States of America. So... I think the military right now is acknowledging this, this reality in a new way with respect to social inequalities. Um, you know, we've seen it recently with uh, many policies coming out about holding town halls or squad talks, right, to talk about these issues at the lowest level all the way up to the highest echelon. Um, we've seen it with new policies to remove photos from board files to prevent bias from playing a role in promotions. Um, but we can't stop there. 
those service members that are coming up for promotion with their photos not being there, um, the reality is that they have spent years in a system that's rife with cultural imperialism. And we have to remedy that because their evaluation reports are already written and, and the impact of systemic social inequalities has already started um, to play a role. And so one of the things we have to realize about this cultural imperialism is that um, the people that hold elite status in the military are, are white male and in the army, it's the infantrymen um, and the air force, you know, it's the rated officers in, in, the, in those rated positions. Um, but that was the elite of the past and it continues to be the elite of today. And, and so we have to bring awareness and challenge the majority privilege, social biases, systemic oppression, and the resulting inequalities. One way we can do this is um, through meaningful social interactions. This has to be done on you know, an everyday basis. Um, leaders at every echelon, really individuals, um, have to be able to look around themselves and, and consider, is everyone that I'm around, um, they all look like me. You know, in the past, we've had uh, mentoring programs, and a lot of times it's focused on, you know, people of, of the same social distinctions mentoring their own, right? But that approach really abdicates the social majority from taking a role in addressing these systemic social inequalities. We've told social minorities, hey, you figure it out. Find a way, make a way for each other, right? And, that, and that's, that's not the answer. We cannot continue to promote that, that type of culture. Um, the, the, the cultural imperialism extends beyond the individual interactions, right? Those, those meaningful relationships can start to change hearts and minds. We saw that in the Korean War. Leo Bogart, um, the research done on Project CLEAR made that very evident. Um, there's a lot of research within the civilian sector, especially at higher um, education institutions of how those meaningful social interactions can really impact an individual and how they, um, in their own biases, um, but then we actually need to take that a step further and we need to look at our systems and we need to see how has um, the, the, the cultural elite set up systems that have benefited themselves. And it's not necessarily changing the standards, right? But it's saying, okay, what are we doing to measure those standards? And are those measurements done in a way that really takes into consideration all cultures and made it possible for everyone of different social distinctions to be able to be successful? Danelle, thank you so much for sharing your findings with us today and for your time and for hopefully helping us move to the next level in the dialogue. And thank you to all our listeners. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Decisive Point. Thank you.